Okay, First Chronicles chapter 1. In 1986, I went on a two-week bus tour across Europe. We started in Copenhagen, Copenhagen, depending on how you want to pronounce it. We called it Copenhagen-Hagen because it was just easier. And we bussed all the way down to Paris. Part of the way, we jumped on a train and caught it across. But there was so much to see. You can imagine two weeks to see Europe. So we only stopped at key significant historical points. Most of the time, our driver, our, our tour guy was up in the front just calling out things as we drove by, you know, at 65, 70 miles an hour. That's how I feel tonight. Welcome to the bus tour of the first eight chapters of First Chronicles. We are going to go flying through some of this. Strap on your Bible belts. You'll need them. We're going to head out on this tour and we're going to stop and view some key attractions along the way. A lot of the things that are talked about in these first eight chapters have been talked about, have been studied actually by us uh, here at the bridge. And so some of these I'll, I'll illuminate for you. I'll say, hey, you can go back and check this out. In an earlier study, if you want to uh, look it up on the, on the web or just do the study yourself. But we're going to move pretty quickly. The Hebrew title for First Chronicles, actually for the book of Chronicles, which as I said Sunday, included the two books of Chronicles, Ezra and Nehemiah. It was one scroll originally. It was called Deber Hayamim. Deber Hayamim. I'm probably not pronouncing that correctly, any more than Copenhagen Hagen. But the Hebrew title literally is the words concerning the days. That's what they called this, this scroll. The words concerning the days, specifically the days of King David and the kings of Judah following after the line of David. The Hebrew tradition credits Ezra the scribe as the writer of this single scroll. Probably wrote it around 400 B.C. So this would be after the Babylonian captivity after their return from Babylon, Babylonian captivity was 586 B.C. Seventy years later, the Jews began to return. They didn't return in mass. They had a couple of smaller returns and then filtered in a little bit over the years. But this was written after that time. And Ezra's intentions in the writing of this are very clear. To chronicle the pedigree and the posterity of David. His pedigree, where he came from, and his posterity, who came after him. That's the focus of First Chronicles. Second Chronicles will go in more into his posterity and the kings of Judah. But put another way, you could say that Ezra was recording the roots and the descendants of David. That's Ezra's intention. But the divine intention, the Holy Spirit who inspired the writing of this book, the true author, his intention is greater. Jesus said in Revelation 22.16, I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. What does that mean? Specifically, Jesus is saying, David came from me, and I came from David. I preceded him, I came after him. Jesus being God can do that type of thing. But it's important to recognize this as we begin First Chronicles, because while Ezra determined to record the line of David, God inspired and authored Chronicles to reveal the line of Messiah. Now back in 400, when Ezra finished the scroll, if it was passed out and read and studied, it would have just been seen as a Davidic line, as a history, as a chronicle, hence the name. But for us looking back, it is far more than that. We are not just looking at the history of David and the kings, we are looking at the line of Messiah. And you will see the significance of this as we get deeper into the book and move further along in our study of First and Second Chronicles. The line of Messiah, root 
and descendant of David. Now, as we talked about on Sunday, one other quick thing. Messiah had to be the seed of Abraham. He had to then go through that seed, through Isaac, through Israel, Jacob, who was renamed Israel, through the line of Judah, and finally through the family of David. God was very specific. He starts with Abraham, but he hones it down. Getting to a final point where the prophets and the Old Testament scriptures describe that Messiah must come through this line directly, as we know that Jesus did. The opening verses take us right down this road. In fact, start, start us off that way. Verse 1 of chapter 1. Adam, Seth, Enosh, Kenan, Mahalalel, Jared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, and Noah. Now stopping right there, those ten names are the ten generations between Adam and Noah. It's a great thing to see this. The writer of Chronicles was a meticulous, meticulous historian. As we go through, you may pick up some of the books that he references. He, he went through several. He uses, obviously, First and Second Samuel. He uses First and Second Kings as historical reference as he's writing. In chapter 1, verses, uh, or First Chronicles, chapter 27, verse 24, he will refer to the book of the annals of King David. In Second Chronicles 27, 7, he will refer to the book of the kings of Israel and Judah. In 2 Chronicles 16.11, he'll refer to the book of the kings of Judah and Israel, and of Israel and Judah, and now Judah and Israel, a different book. In 1 Chronicles 9, verse 1, he refers to the book of the kings of Israel. 2 Chronicles 33.18, the annals of the kings of Israel. And then he goes on, and in 1 Chronicles 29.29, he refers to the records of Samuel, the records of Nathan the prophet, the records of Gad the prophet. He draws off of all these things to establish the historical truth, the historical veracity of what he was writing. And for those people living in that time, when they received Chronicles, they could go, oh yeah, oh that's where he got his information. You know, I I might tell you something. For example, give you a statistic I just read a little while ago, and you may be getting an email about this. The Jewish population of America, some total Jewish population in America is 1.7% of our entire population. And yet in 2007, 68% of all hate crimes were anti-Semitic in America. These are pre-Holocaust levels. Frightening things are happening. But you might say, okay, Rick's just picking numbers out of the sky. No, I got that from Friends of Israel, from the magazine, and within the magazine they cite their references and their resources. And so I can cite that and you can know, okay, that's a, that's a legitimate fact. Well, that's what the writer of 1st and 2nd Chronicles does throughout is establish the facts as historical truth so that anyone reading the scroll in those days would say, oh, I see, okay, I see where he gets this. So it's legitimate, it's true. As we begin, one of the books that it's obvious he had open before him was the book of Genesis. You Bible students may recall, back in Genesis chapter 5, we get the ten generations from Adam all the way to Noah. If you haven't heard this, I'll share it with you quickly before. What's amazing about that, absolutely fascinating, is if you take those ten names, Adam, Seth, Enosh, Kenan, Mahalalel, Jared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, and Noah, take those ten names and write out the meaning of each name as one long sentence and you get the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'll read it to you. Adam's name means man. Seth means appointed. Enosh means mortal or subject to death. Kenan means sorrowful. So man appointed became subject to death, sorrowful. Mahalalel means from the presence of God. Jared means one comes down. 
Enoch means dedicated. Methuselah means in his death it shall come or dying he shall sin. Lamech means the poor and lowly and Noah means comfort. Red is one sentence. Man appointed, mortal or subject to death. Sorrowful. From the presence of God one comes down, dedicated. Dying he shall sin to the poor and lowly comfort. It's the gospel of Jesus. Genesis chapter 5. You can go back and study and read it there. But it's right here in verse 1 of 1 Chronicles 2. See, what Ezra may not have known is what the Holy Spirit was inspiring is before we even get one full verse into 1 Chronicles, God is saying, this is about Jesus. This book is about the line of Yeshua, Hamashiach, Jesus the Christ. Now, three more names continue in the opening verse. And they continue on through verse 27. It's Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. From these three men, we get in Genesis chapter 10 what's called the Table of Nations. And it's a fascinating study. If you wonder, where did all the nations come from and, and where did we originate? Well, we can draw back to Noah. After the flood, landing there on Mount Ararat, he had his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, with him. And from these three men come then the entire pedigree of earth. Their posterity relates to you and to me. Let me give you just a few highlights on this. It talks about in verses 5 through 7, the sons of Japheth. Japheth. The people of Japheth migrated north by northwest to settle in the regions of Asia and Europe. You can read about this in Genesis chapter 10. talks about how his people, his sons, and some of these names are right in here, Gomer, and Magog, Tubal, Meshach, and Jabin, and Togarma, and Tarshish. Here's where those people settled. Gomer, the people of Gomer, settled in the Black Sea region. Now we know some of this, by the way. We know this historically. Magog, Meshech, Tubal, these are Russian names. These are the people who settled the region of Russia. Javan, the Javanites, settled Greece and became the Greek people ultimately. Togarma is Turkey. Tarshish would be England. And in that settlement, what we see is the sons of Japheth, they settled around the Caucasus or Caucasus Mountains, where we get the word Caucasian, which is my lineage, my heritage, and many of yours coming from the son of Noah, who was named Japheth. The sons of Ham, verses 8 through 16, talk, give all the names of the sons of Ham. They migrated south by southwest and filled the continent of Africa. You'll notice some of these names. Put, which is Libya. Cush, Ethiopia. Sheba and Dedan would be Saudi Arabia. And continuing on down. Now verses 17 through 27. See how quickly we're moving through this? The sons of Shem. The sons of Shem remained primarily there in the Middle East. They are the Shemitic or Semitic people. The Jewish people. And interestingly, the Arabs. You see, Jews and Arabs are much closer in relation than some of them would like to admit. The fighting and the warring and the everlasting, as the Bible calls it, the everlasting enmity or hatred between Jews and Arabs is a family feud between brothers that go all the way back to Shem. Now a couple of quick stops along the way here. If you look down at verse 19, it tells us two sons were born to Eber. The name of the one was Peleg, for in his day days the earth was divided. Now, now two quick points. I mentioned Sunday. Eber is the origin of the name of the Hebrew people. That's where Hebrew comes from is Eber. Okay? Of the line of Shem, the Semitic people. But what's interesting in verse 19 is it mentions Peleg. 
Peleg, for in his day the earth was divided. Now, Genesis chapter 10 in the table of nations says the same thing. What exactly does that mean? Now, many people think it's a reference to the Tower of Babel and the division that happened there. After the flood, as man gathered, they were all in one location on earth, all speaking one language, all working very powerfully together to accomplish their own might, and the Tower of Babel was a monument to man. Look at what we can build. Look at how high and how great we are. And God said, enough of that. And He dispersed and scattered, mixing up the languages, scattering man across the whole earth. But what about the animals? How did they get from Mount Ararat, from their exit on the ark, how did they get from Mount Ararat to places like Australia or the Philippines or some of these other locations? Now, people who would contradict the scriptures would say, see, it's it's ridiculous. They all landed in one place because they couldn't have gotten spread out everywhere. Well, they could if it happened in the days of Peleg when the earth was divided. And there's good reason to believe the earth was divided has to do with the theory that we've heard about the continental shift. That God shifted after the flood continents and broke things up and animals that, and, and humans that would have been in one place would have ended up in these different locations. Part of the reason I think this may be the case is the word earth here. And in his days, the earth was divided. The word earth is Eretz. Eretz in the Hebrew, you may have heard of the nation of Israel called Eretz Israel. That's what the Jews call it. Eretz Israel. It means land or earth of Israel. So in Peleg's day, it wasn't that the people were divided. It wasn't that humanity was divided. It was the earth. Literally, land was divided in the days of Peleg. Another clue here is Peleg's name means earthquake. So he was named at a time where obviously his parents were quite impressed by the earthquakes that were taking place. So you put those two together, and this may well be a reference to a massive topographical, geological, and geographic change that took place in the days of Peleg. Interesting to think about, and you can consider that and study it some more. Skip down now to verse 25. Verse 25 telling us about Eber, that is from the, where we get Hebrews, Peleg, his son, and Ru, his son, Serug, Nahor, Terah, Abram, that is, Abraham. And we're told in verse 28, the sons of Abraham were Isaac and Ishmael, so these two brothers, half-brothers, being Semitic people, are the brothers of the Jews and the Arabs today, and where so much of the, the enmity comes from. Now, verses 29 through 31 cover Ishmael's offspring. Verses 32 through 33 cover Abraham's sons through his concubine, a woman he drew himself to after Sarah died, a woman named Keturah. Now, these are mentioned, but we're skipping right over them because they're not significant to the line of Messiah. They're mentioned historically, but they are not through whom Messiah comes. In fact, they would be these sons of Keturah Abraham's sons by another woman, and even Abraham's son Ishmael through Hagar are in God's estimation not the significant line. Listen to what the Lord said. I think this is fascinating. Genesis 22, verse 1. It says that God tested Abraham, and He said to him, Abraham! And He said, Here I am, which is always what you say when God calls your name. He said, Take now your son, listen, your only son, whom you love, Isaac. Did God just miss something? Ishmael was alive and well. Ishmael was older than Isaac, was alive at that time. But God said, take your only son, whom you love, Isaac. Go to the land of Moriah, 
Offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you, Mount Moriah, which is right there in Israel. In fact, it's the mountain on which the Temple Mount sits. Mount Moriah. Did God just not care about poor Ishmael that he would cast him out? Take your only son Isaac. I don't care about that other kid. Hey, wait a minute. On the contrary, if you look at history, God greatly blessed Ishmael because he was of the seed of Abraham. God made 12 princes who came from the line of Ishmael. And as a matter of fact, if you look at the Middle East today, tell me who got the greater deal in terms of land. The Jews or the Arabs? The Ishmaelites or the Hebrews? Arabs have the vast land holdings. The Arabs have all the oil. It was Golda Meir who said Moses led the people in the wilderness wandering for 40 years and took them to the one place in the promise in, in the land where there was no oil. God greatly blessed Ishmael and his offspring because God is a faithful God. Even though Ishmael was the result of a sin choice by Abraham, God still protected, he saved Ishmael at a time when Ishmael was dying. And he gave him a great posterity. But the Lord makes it abundantly clear that the rightful line of the Abrahamic covenant is through Isaac. Why does he do that? Because he wants Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the people of Israel, and you and I to understand something. That God's work is by his hand, not by the hand of man. Ishmael was born of the initiative of Abraham. Wow, Sarah's so old, there ain't no way a kid's coming from her. Hagar, on the other hand, is kind of cute and young. Sarah was the one who said, Take her. I mean, we got to do what God says, right? And boy, do we get in trouble. When we take the call of God and we wrest control of it and make it work the way we think it's supposed to instead of waiting for God to work on His terms. And that's what happened with Abraham and, and Hagar. The entire history, gang, of our world is truly, if we look at it, a declaration of the great things of the Lord, not the great things of man. This is where most of us get tripped up. Even believers, but especially among non-believers, we get tripped up looking for the greatness of man, the accomplishments of humanity. Well, Psalm 71.19 says, For your righteousness, O God, reaches to the heavens. You who have done great things, O God, who is like you? And the question implies nobody. Let me just ask you tonight, what are the great things that God has done in your life? I think it's wise from time to time to stop and think about that. What are the great things that God has done? By contrast, what are the great things that you've done? I bet if you sat down and started to list them out, you'd see that God wins out hand over fist. Jeremiah chapter 45, verse 5 says, But you, are you seeking great things for yourself? Do not seek them. For behold, I'm going to bring disaster on all flesh, declares the Lord, but I will give your life to you as prey in all the places where you may go. And he's speaking to Israel. And he says, don't think yourselves great. You're going to go through tragedy and trial and turmoil. It's going to be an awful, awful existence for a long period of time. But guess what? In spite of the hatred and enmity of the entire world against you, I'm going to bring you through. And people will look and say, wow, what great things God has done. You know, we've talked often about trying to break free of the man-centered mindset. It is the greatest struggle of my life, I just confess to you. Risk-centeredness, self-centered behavior and thinking, that we even take the things of God and center them in on ourselves. I was listening to Praise 106, driving Corey and Hannah to school the other morning. And they were doing this thing, and at first of all, I think it's kind of cool. They're illuminating 
cool things that average people in the church are doing for the Lord. They would say, hey, so-and-so, and they'd have them call in and talk about the, what they're doing in their job for the Lord. And it was person after person after person. And after a while, I, I got to thinking about this. We don't work for Him. He works through us. It's not about what a great thing I've done this week in the workplace for God. It's the fact that if I'm open to the Lord, His work will happen through me. He says in Zechariah 4, verse 6, Not by might nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Remember what He said? You wait in Jerusalem, guys, until you receive power from on high. He didn't send out the apostles saying, Go for it. Good luck. See you later. He said, You're going to go, but wait. Because I'm not sending you on your power. You're going to go by the power of my Holy Spirit. So we don't work for Him. He works through us. Great things, things of eternal value, only come by God's power. Look down at verse 34. It tells us, Abraham then became the father of Isaac. And the sons of Isaac were Esau and Israel, or Jacob. And here's the other division of Arabs and Jews. That there was a division of the Ishmaelites, who are some of the Arab people that draw back to Ishmael. But others draw back to Edom, the Edomites, which Edom was a nickname for Esau. It means red. Because Esau was a big, red, hairy guy. And that was his nickname. And also it had to do with the the soup that, that he sold his birthright for, which was a red soup. So the whole thing ties into Edom. So the rest of the chapter here names the offspring of Esau. talks about the kings and the chiefs of Edom, which is Esau land, basically. And as I said before, just to be clear, Esau and Ishmael are fathers to the Arabs today. Whereas Jacob, or Israel, is the father of the people of Israel. Do the Arabic people just not matter to God? Well, I already pointed out their land holdings. I already pointed out the great blessing that Arabic people have received across the centuries. But maybe you've read in Romans 9, verse 13, Paul said, It is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. That's a tough verse. It's a direct quote. Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What does that mean? It means, in essence, the words love and hatred here are expressed to use, to, to dramatically portray God's choice of Jacob. He chose Jacob because this was God's call. He chose this people out of all the peoples of the world. Rather than Esau and the Arabic people because it had to be his hand working, his will, not the random chance of human coincidence. And if you still think that God's choice or his love for Jacob or Israel and those people is unfair, Paul said in Romans 9.16, it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God. Who has mercy. Who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, Why did you make me like this? Will it? And I would encourage you, as I need to be encouraged myself, that we don't say that to our Maker. Why did you make me this way? Why did you do that? Why this? Why that? All the whys will just confuse us. And they will be answered by the Lord in due time. Chapter 2. Chapter 2 and verse 1 says, These are the sons of Israel. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Dan, Joseph, Benjamin, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. Now after listing the, listing the twelve sons of Israel, the chronicler immediately hones in on the tribe of the most royal supremacy, the tribe of Judah. Verse 3. The sons of Judah were Ur, 
Onan, and Shelah. These three were born to him by Bathsheba the Canaanitess. And Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, so he put him to death. Well, that's a nice, nice little epitaph. Verse 4, Tamar, his daughter-in-law, bore him Perez and Zerah. Judah had five sons in all. Verse 5, the sons of Perez were Hezron and Hamul. The sons of Zerah were Zimri, Ethan, Heman, Calcol, and Dara. Five of them in all. The son of Carmi was Achar, or Achan, the troubler of Israel who violated the ban. And the son of Ethan was Azariah. You know, sadly, and I'll just point this out quickly, there are two names in here. Ur, Judah's firstborn, who was wicked in the sight of the Lord, so he put him to death. And Achan, the troubler of Israel, who violated the ban. How would you like that to be your epitaph? (laughs) What you are remembered out uh, for, for the rest of your life, for the rest of eternity, for history. This is what these two guys were remembered for, being sinful, wicked men. And that's tragic. On the other hand, Judah becomes the tribe of supremacy. Why does Judah have the supremacy? He's not the firstborn. He's the fourthborn son of Jacob. And besides, if you look at the sons of Jacob, wasn't Joseph the really good son? I mean, if anyone's going to take supremacy, shouldn't it be Joseph? Well, to understand this, we need to keep a finger here in Second in First Chronicles 2 and go back to Genesis 49. Genesis chapter 49. In what we now understand to be one of the greatest prophecies in all biblical writing, Jacob, an old man now, already has been named Israel by God, but, but Jacob, he kind of is going by both names a little bit, he summons his twelve boys to his bedside. And in Genesis 49, he begins to pronounce blessing on them. Blessing, quote, unquote. But the blessing is prophecy. In fact, if you read it in verse 1 of Genesis 49, it says, Jacob summoned his sons and said, Assemble yourselves that I may tell you what may befall you in the days to come. Days to come there literally is the last days. Here's what's going to happen. Through your line, through the tribes, in the last days. Gather together and hear, O sons of Jacob, and listen to Israel your father. Now in verse 4 it says, Reuben, you're my firstborn. My might and the beginning of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power, or first in dignity and power, uncontrolled as water. You shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Now that doesn't mean that Jacob came home one day and discovered Reuben having a nap on his bed. I've discovered my kids having naps on my bed. I don't appreciate it, but they don't get booted out of their position in the family. Okay? Something more went on here. Genesis chapter 35 verse 22 tells us that Reuben went in and slept with his dad's wife or concubine, Bilhah. Why would he do such a thing? Well, two possibilities. One was just out of spite. Reuben, the firstborn, was Leah's son. Bilhah now comes along, so his mother's kind of brushed aside. There's Leah, there's Rachel, there's Bilhah. There's the fourth one whose name escapes me right now. Anybody remember the fourth? Zilpah? Okay. (laughs) So why would he do that spite again because it was Leah's son? But here's another reason why Reuben might have done this. Paganism. 
For the pagan ritual or custom in the time was to establish the supremacy of the firstborn. The firstborn, when the father was aging, would go in and sleep with his father's wife. And therefore establish himself now as the leader of the family. Possibly that's what Reuben was trying to do. But because he did that, he lost his birthright. He lost the place of supremacy. Reuben would no longer be first in the family of boys. So verse 5 going on goes to the next two sons, Simeon and Levi. Jacob's pronouncing blessing. He says, Simeon and Levi are brothers. Their swords are implements of violence. Let my soul not enter into their counsel. Let not my glory be united with their assembly because in their anger they slew men and in their self-will they lamed oxen. What's going on there? Simeon or Shimon in the Hebrew and Levi, they didn't get the position that Reuben lost because of their brutality. And you go back to Genesis 34 for this story. Their sister Diane, or Dinah was raped by a man named Shechem, a prince. And so Simeon and Levi cruelly took matters into their own hands. They went to the town of Shechem. They called Shechem, the leaders of the town, and they said, Hey, listen, we've got to deal with you. If you want to marry our sister Dinah, that's cool. We'll, we'll marry and we'll take your daughters, you can take our daughters, and we'll marry in together. But if you want to do that, you've got to be circumcised like we are. And the men of the town agreed. And while they were recovering, on the day of their circumcision, Simeon and Levi came in and slaughtered them. And Jacob said, you guys are a stench to me. Now all my neighbors, can you imagine that? Your sons, dad, your sons go and kill all the neighbors? (laughs) And that's what happened. And so he says, these two boys are out. Reuben's out, which brings us to the fourth son of Israel, Judah who will now gain preeminence in the royal line. Listen to this prophecy, verse 8. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. And by the way, Judah was the tribe that led out in battle because their hand would be against the enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down to you, which is perfectly fulfilled in the lines of the kings of Judah because the father's sons bowed down to those kings. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He couches, he lies down as a lion. And as a lion, who dares rouse him? Which is why Jesus, who is of the line of the tribe of Judah, is called the lion of the tribe of Judah. The scepter, he says in verse 10, shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. The rule, the authority... Jacob says it right here. It's going to come through the line of Judah. I think this is interesting. Verse 11, he ties his foal to the vine. What did, what did Jesus ride into Jerusalem as he established his authority but the foal of a donkey? And his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He washes his garments in wine and his robes in the blood of grapes. And indeed, within a week of entering in Jerusalem on the colt of the donkey, his robe was drenched in his own blood. His eyes are dull. Actually, that that word dull in verse 12 means darker than. His eyes are darker than wine. And his teeth, white from milk, which is an allusion to a lamb. And so in this we get this amazing, beautiful prophecy of Jesus. More than just a blessing on the tribe of Judah. Now, back in 1 Chronicles chapter 2, so we follow this line of Judah, they are given preeminence, they are given the place of rule, prophetically and messianically, 
Judah's line becomes Jesus' line. But Judah's posterity is not pretty. I mean, you look at Reuben and what he did and say, well, no wonder he's out. And Simeon and Levi, no wonder they're out. Well, look at what Judah does. We're told in verse 3 that Ur, Judah's firstborn, was so sinful God had to put him to death. And we're told again that the last two of Judah's sons, Perez and Zerah, in verse 4, were birthed by a woman named Tamar, who was, guess who? Judah's daughter-in-law. Not his wife. His son's wife. So he sleeps with her because she makes herself into a harlot and he thinks she's just a harlot. Goes in with her. I mean, it's a very sordid tale. Sleeps with her. She gets pregnant. Comes back and says, hey, by the way, I'm pregnant. He goes, hey, it's not my problem. Yeah, well, there. It's by you. You're the one. She had proof of that. You can read about that sordid tale in Genesis 38. And then you've got in that same line the man named Achan, who I mentioned before, who caused all of Israel to have an Achan breaking heart. He's the man who buried the banned treasure under his tent after the people took Jericho. God said, This treasure is banned. You may not take this as spoil. And Achan said, That's too good. Buried it under his tent, and all Israel began to lose horribly in the next battle. And so God said, you got a problem. you got a hidden sin here. This is all in the line of Judah. That story of Achan is in Joshua chapter 7. But in spite of the sin, and in spite of the mess-ups, and in spite of the flubs of Judah's line, the Lord maintains this line. Even among kings who did some pretty wicked things, He maintains the line. He keeps them alive. He keeps them going. He protects the line all the way down to Jesus. Not because the line was great, but because the plans and the purposes of God, in spite of the goofs and the gaffes of man, do not fail. And that should be great news for all of us tonight. In spite of our sin, in spite of our failure, in spite of our abject stupidity, the plans of God do not fail. And if you will give your life to Him, He is going to succeed in His plans for you even if you blow it, which we all do from time to time. Because as Romans 11.29 says, and we've quoted this often, the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Second Chronicles, or First Chronicles, sorry, chapter 2, verse 9, continuing on, tells us the sons of Hezron who were born to him were Jeremiel, Ram, and Chelubai, or Caleb. And that would be Caleb with Joshua who is by. Verse 10, Ram became the father of Aminadab. And Aminadab became the father of Nachshon, the leader of the sons of Judah. You read about his name in, I believe, Numbers 1 or 2. Nachshon became the father of Salma. And Salma, the father of Boaz. Salma, or Salmon, same guy, became the father of Boaz. Boaz became the father of Obed. Obed became the father of Jesse. Jesse became the father of Eliab, his firstborn. Then Abinadab the second, Shimea the third, Netanel the fourth, Radii the fifth, Ozim the sixth, David the seventh. And their sisters were Zeruiah and Abigail. And so we come down finally to David. Now, you might say, hang on a second, I got a little problem here. It says David was the seventh son. And if you're paying attention, you know David is listed in 1 Samuel as the eighth son. Like, let me read this to you, 1 Samuel 16, verse 10. Thus Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. But Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. That is, seven. And Samuel said to Jesse, Are these all the children? He said, Well, there remains yet the youngest. Behold, he's tending the sheep. And that was little David, the eighth son. 
So if Samuel said that David was the eighth, and now Ezra, if he's the author here, says David was the seventh, we got a contradiction in Scripture? Do we have a problem here? I don't think so. What this just indicates to us is one of Jesse's sons either died young without posterity, or he may have left the family to seek his own good, maybe like the prodigal son. He took off and said, I don't want to have anything to do with the family. Whatever reason, from Samuel now to Ezra, after all these years, as Ezra looks back, he, he does not include one of the sons. He says, this son is no longer a player in the family of Jesse. Two more quick points of interest in chapter 2, if you go to verse 18. It tells us, Caleb, the son of Hezron, had sons by Azuba, his wife, and by Jerioth. And these were her sons, Jesser, Shobab, and Ardom. Now when Azuba died, Caleb married Ephrath, who bore him her. Her became father of Uri, and Uri became the father of Bezalel. And Bezalel was that master craftsman who designed the tabernacle. His name is significant. Exodus chapter 31, verse 2. says, See, I have called my name, called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur of the tribe of Judah. I have filled him with the Spirit of God in wisdom, in understanding, in knowledge, and in all kinds of craftsmanship. And so Bezalel, with all of this gifting from God, was the artisan, the craftsman, who designed the tabernacle. Now, the reason I stop for a moment and point this guy out is the gifting of God may not always be as spiritual as you would think or as spiritual as you would hope. Maybe you've taken a spiritual gift inventory and you haven't done well. I don't know. Can you fail those? Less? I, you can't. It's not a pass-fail thing. I mean, everybody's going to have some gift that rises. But if you've gone through spiritual gift inventories, hey, they're a great idea. They can be a great help. But sometimes they can be limiting. Because nowhere in the spiritual gifts listed in 1 Corinthians 12 or Ephesians 4 or Romans 12 or other places, nowhere is a craftsman mentioned as a gift of the Spirit. And yet Bezalel was gifted with the spiritual gifts of understanding and wisdom and knowledge in all kinds of craftsmanship. What I'm pointing out is that what you have to offer, what the Lord has gifted you to do, may not look like the gift of prophecy or tongues. It may not look like the gift of healing or evangelism. It may be the gift of artwork. It may be the gift of music. It may be the gift of administration, although administrations you can make a case for that being one of the spiritual gifts. It may be the gift of, you know, Dave works with trees. Can that gift be used for the Lord? Already has been. On the property over there on Troxel. Whatever God has gifted you with, like Bezalel, if you're functioning in the Spirit of God, there are aspects of you that may not show up on a spiritual gift inventory, but they are gifts nonetheless and to be used for the Lord. Whether God has called you to prophecy or to peeling potatoes, do it for Him. Do it all for Him. So that's Bezalel. We also see that after Hezron's first wife died, he married a woman named Ephrath, or literally Ephrathah. Does that name sound familiar, Ephrathah? Skip down to verse 50. Verse 50 says these were the sons of Caleb. Now the sons of Hur, the firstborn of Ephrathah, was Shobal, the father of Kiriath-Jerim, and Salma, the father of Bethlehem, and Hareth, the father of Beth-Gader. So, Bethlehem, Ephrathah. The birthplace of Jesus Christ got his name from a man and from his mother, both in this line of Judah. The wife of Hezron, Ephrathah and her son Bethlehem. I thought that was interesting. So we write on down 
And uh, one more thing I'll point out. Verse 55, the families of scribes who lived at Jabez were the Tirathites, the Shimeathites, and the Sukathites. So in verse 55, there are a group of scribes. These are the guys who wrote down and kept Scripture across the years. We sang a little while ago, you know, came to us through sacrifice, so heed the faithful words of Christ. We talked about, we sang about the ancient words. One of the great things that Jewish people did across the centuries was maintain the Scriptures. And that was the role of the scribes, to meticulously jot down and write down verse by verse, testing it and checking it, making sure they have it accurate. And they did a phenomenal, I believe, God-led, Spirit-led job. There's a whole group of them that lived in this town named Jabez. Tuck that away for a moment. Now, chapter 3, verse 1. These were the sons of David, who were born to him in Hebron. The firstborn was Amnon by Ahinoam, the Jezreelitess. The second was Daniel by Abigail, the Carmelitess. The third was Absalom, the king of Maaka, the daughter of Talmai, the king of Geshur. The fourth was Adonijah, the son of Hagit. The fifth was Shephatiah by Abital. The sixth was Ephraim by his wife Eglah. Six were born to him in Hebron, and there he reigned seven years and six months. And in Jerusalem, he reigned 33 years. These were born to him in Jerusalem. Shimea, Shobab, Nathan, Solomon, four by Bathsheba, the daughter of Amiel. And also in verse 6, Ibhar, Elishama, Elephalet, Noga, Nepheg, Japhia, Elishama, Eliada, Elephalet, nine. All these were the sons of David, besides the sons of the concubines, and Tamar was their sister. So just adding those names, 20 kids. David was prolific. And he had lots of kids. You notice there's no mention of a mother by the name of Michael, who was Saul's daughter, but was wife of David. It's because she despised him when he worshipped the Lord, and the Bible tells us from that day forward she would not bear children. Interesting. But all these kids are mentioned, and this line of David is mentioned. And these, at this point, the line of the kings will, will, will fail... Well, following the next several verses, let me read on a little bit further. Verse 10, Solomon's son was Rehoboam, Abijah was his son, and reading through the list of names, Asa, Jehoshaphat, Joram, Ahaziah, Joash, Amaziah, Azariah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, Manasseh, Ammon, Josiah, Johanan, Jehoiakim, Zedekiah. The fourth was Shalom. Verse 16 says, the sons of Jehoiakim were Jeconiah, his son Zedekiah, his son and then chapter, verse 17 on down continues to talk about Jeconiah. These are the kings, the line of the kings of Judah, following right after one son after another, fathered by David, the line of the kings of Judah. These lines are delineated. We're going to read about this in Second Chronicles. It will detail each one of these kings and what they did and what happened as they went in a downward spiral for the most part. A couple of bright points throughout there, but for the most part, not good. And it will end, it will end finally at the, at the at verse 24, ends up with uh, this listing of, of people after the return from Babylonian captivity. But you need to understand something, that the royal line after Judah returned from captivity, that royal line was a cursed line. Verse 17 again says, The sons of Jeconiah the prisoner were Shealtul his son, and then it begins listing these names. And so through David, down in this very honed-down line of the Messiah, we get to a man named Jeconiah. And Jeconiah brought a curse 
on the house of Judah. Let me read it to you. Jeremiah 22, verse 30. Perhaps you've heard this. Thus says the Lord, Write this man, Jeconiah, down childless, a man who will not prosper in his days, and no man of his descendants will prosper sitting on the throne of David or ruling again in Judah. This is a pronouncement of the Lord. From here on out, you get down this this line of Judah, the Messianic line, and you hit Jeconiah. And God says, from this point forward, no one on this line is going to sit on the throne. Nobody. Well, there's a problem here. You might say, hang on, wasn't that Jesus' lineage? So if God cursed the line at Jeconiah, then that would mean Jesus could never sit on the throne. How could Jesus rule if the throne, if the line was cursed? We talked about this when we started Matthew. Jesus' legal right to the throne would come along that line from David's son Solomon down through Jeconiah and all the way to Joseph. Matthew chapter 1 tells us. But you know Joseph was not his real father. We know that the only blood tie that Jesus had in humanity was not through Joseph, but it was through Mary. And if you go to Luke chapter 3, verse 31, and trace the lineage there, it is the lineage leading down through Mary, not through Joseph. And that's through David's son Nathan. It bypasses Jeconiah and gets right to Jesus. And I absolutely love that. I think it's so cool. You may recall about a month ago or so, on that bright, warm spring day when all the power went out. And we finally discovered how all the power went out. There was a car accident where a car hit a, hit a pole in Cedro Woolley and shot the power for three counties. What happened with Jeconiah is similar in that one man cursed an entire line, short-circuited the line of the kings. But God had a backup plan. We didn't when Cedro lost power, and we all lost power. We didn't have another circuit by which to run our power. God did. God kept the power running via another circuit through the line of Nathan, who was also David's son, all the way down to Mary and then to Jesus Christ. I just think that's wonderful. Now if we continue on in chapter 4. The sons of Judah were Perez, Hezron, Carmi, Hur, and Shobal. And in chapter 4, we continue with Judah, and as we read through the names, we come to one obscure little guy, at least until his name was made famous a few years back. Go to verse 9. Jabez. Jabez was more honorable than his brothers, and his mother named him Jabez, saying, Because I bore him with pain. That's a nice thing to name your child. You hurt me in childbirth. That's his name. Painful child. Verse 10, Now Jabez called on the God of Israel, saying, Oh, that you would bless me, indeed, and enlarge my border, and that your hand might be with me, and that you would keep me from harm, though it may not pain me. And God granted him what he requested. And you've probably heard of the popular best-selling book that came out a few years back called The Prayer of Jabez. 93-page little booklet. And it stormed the Christian book scene. You may have that book sitting on your shelf at home. Prayer of Jabez by Bruce Wilkinson. It's an excellent little book. But what's interesting to me is the whole thing is based on a little two-verse prayer by a no-name man named Jabez. And until Wilkinson wrote the book, no one probably even knew who Jabez was. Who cared? Now, I highly doubt if Jabez ever thought his prayer would be made into a bestseller. But there is something about this little prayer that made it effective. So effective that God made sure it was mentioned in 1 Chronicles. 
And it may not be what you think, but we don't have time to talk about it tonight. I'll talk about it Sunday. So come back and we'll get to it then. Verses 11 through 23 follow the rest of Judah's line. It mentions craftsmen in verse 14. It mentions linen workers in verse 21. It mentions potters in verse 23. We talked about on Sunday that throughout these genealogies we see the positions and roles of the people in Israel. God-given, God-ordained positions. But I love how this little section concludes in verse 23. He says, These were the potters and the inhabitants of Netaim and Gadara. They lived there with the king for his work. They lived with the king for his work. I just love the way that rings. What do you do for a living? Oh, I'm a potter. I'm a textile worker. I'm a craftsman. But check it out. I work for the king. Just saw the, uh, the movie, a Tale of, The Tale of Despero, the other night. Cool little movie. But in it, there's, there's a, a little woman who wants to be a princess. She's not very attractive. The way they draw her... You know, a little scary looking. And, but she so wants to be a princess, and she's thrilled that she even gets to work in the palace. She thinks by getting to work in the palace, she's on her way to becoming a princess. And that's what these people think. You know, that they've lived there. They worked with the king, for the king. And the bottom line is, whether you're a carpenter or a car salesman, or a linen worker or a lawyer or a potter or a pastor, do your work for the king. Do your work for the king. Wherever he has you planted, work there for the king, in the presence of the king. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10.31, Whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. In fact, there was one of the lines, in the line of the kings of, of Judah, there was one man who did this, a king who worked for the king. We're told in 2 Chronicles 31, verse 20, Hezekiah did what was good, right, and true before the Lord his God. Every work which he began in the service of the house of of God, in law and in commandment, seeking his his God, Hezekiah did with all his heart, and he prospered. See, here was a king who realized that if he functioned in the presence of the king, life would be better for it. And that's the call, I believe, on all of our lives. Now, if you go through the rest of chapter 4, we cover the line of Shimon, or Simeon, who, like Jabez of Judah, Simeon, the tribe, sought to expand their territory. And down in verse 39, if you'll skip down there, it tells us that they went to the entrance of Gedor, even to the east side of the valley, to seek pasture for their flocks. But they found rich and good pasture, and the land was broad and quiet and peaceful. For those who lived there formerly were Hamites. But you know, as we talked about, they had all moved down into the region of Africa. These recorded by name came in the days of Hezekiah the king of Judah who attacked their tents and the Mayunites who were found there and we're talking about Simeon now destroyed the Mayunites utterly to this day and lived in their place because there was pasture there for their flocks. From them, from the sons of Simeon, 500 men went to Mount Seir with Palatia and and Neriah and Rephaiah and Uzziel, the sons of Ishi as their leaders, Verse 43, they destroyed the remnant of the Amalekites who escaped and have lived there to this day. Now understand what Simeon did in driving out these enemies. What they did was God's command. He said when the people came into the land, drive the enemies out completely. So they were following his command. But the reason they did it was because they saw the land was good. What I'm saying here is these guys, these guys had a vision or caught a vision, maybe of what it was that God was doing. God said, drive out the land, and when they saw the land, they went, wow, (laughs) it makes sense to drive these people out, because this land is great. 
And once they saw it, then they fought and drove out the people. Once they had a vision for it, once they had a recognition of the good that can come of this, they followed through with God's call. Do you see a fertile land surrounding us here? When you look in the region of where God has planted the territory that God has given the Bridge Christian Fellowship, do you see a fertile land? Do you see the possibility of people who could be saved? We prayed for them earlier. Do you realize the countless hundreds of thousands of people in Oak Harbor, Anacortes, and the surrounding region who right now are waiting to hear the name of Jesus? We're talking about building this church building over on Troxel Road. Why would we do that? Gang, Jesus said in John 4.35, Lift up your eyes and look on the fields. They are white for the harvest. They're ready. It's time. Bring them in. Jesus said, all you need to do is ask for workers to go into the harvest. The harvest is there. The ground has been tilled. The seed has grown. There are hearts who are literally ready right now to hear Jesus' name. We walk around going, well, I don't know if I want to say, I don't know if I'm going to have the right answers, or should I speak His name out loud? Or, oh, I'm just uncomfortable being that evangelistic person Rick talks about. The hearts are ready. Do you see it? I'm convinced, I read this and I thought, boy, if we could see this region the way Simeon saw the good pasture land, we could take it. We could go into the harvest. And we could see a great harvest of souls. Want to take the land? Boy, I sure do. Pray that we will. Pray that we will. Chapter 5, verse 1. Now the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, for he was the firstborn, but because he defiled his father's bed, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph. I thought it was Judah. Sons of Joseph, the son of Israel, so that he is not enrolled in the genealogy according to the birthright. Oh, okay, here we go. Verse 2, Though Judah prevailed over his brothers, and from him came the leader, yet the birthright belonged to Joseph. And the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, were Hanok and Palu and Hezron and Carmine. It goes on and, and talks about those sons. According to Ezra, the birthright was given to Joseph's sons, that is Ephraim and Manasseh. But Judah prevailed. Judah prevailed. Though Jacob, and he does this before chapter 49 of the book of Genesis, before he blesses and gives it to Judah, he gives firstborn preeminence to Ephraim and Manasseh. Genesis 48, verse 5. Jacob says to Joseph, Now to your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt, they are mine. Listen to this. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are. Ephraim and Manasseh would take the place of Reuben and Simeon in the eyes, the failing eyes at this point of Jacob. And they would receive birthright. And what this hints at is the establishment of young Ephraim and Manasseh over the place of Reuben and Simeon, first and second place in the birthright, and yet Judah still gets listed in the family register as first as preeminent. Why is that? Look at verse 2 again. Though Judah prevailed over his brothers, and from him came the leader, yet the birthright belonged to Joseph. The right was Joseph, but Judah prevailed. Judah prevailed. Judah became great. Anyone, by the way, remember what Judah's name means? Praise. 
Praise prevailed. Praise prevailed. There's a great lesson here. You want to prevail over the enemy? You want to prevail over hardships and temptations and even persecutions in your life? Praise prevails. Praise always prevails. You know what? We can whine. We can complain. We can whimper. Or we can praise. It's our call. But according to Scripture, and it's a powerful message, praise prevails. And you can choose to worship God in the worst of circumstances or in the best. But remember, Judah prevails. Praise prevails. But going on down, you might notice in verse 3 or verse 4 here, uh, um, a man named Joel. That's Joel the prophet whose book is later included in the Hebrew prophetic scriptures there, verse 4. Verses 11 through 17 will continue now after we talk about Reuben's sons, we'll continue with the sons of Gad. But watch what happens with the combination of Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, verse 18. Sons of Reuben, the Gadites, half-tribe of Manasseh, consisting of valiant men, men who bore shield and sword and shot with bow and were skillful in battle, were 44,760 who went to war. Told in verse 19, they made war with the Hagrites. Hagrites would be the Hagarites. In other words, the Ishmaelites. They made war against the Hagrites, Jatur and Afish, Nodab, verse 20. They were helped against them, and the Hagrites and all who were with them were given into their hand. Why? They cried out to God in the battle, and He answered their prayers because they trusted in Him. And they took away their cattle, their 50,000 camels, 250,000 sheep, 2,000 donkeys, 100,000 men. Many fell slain because the war was of God. And they settled in their place until the exile. Now those words, until the exile, should come with a little orchestral downbeat. You know, dun, dun, dun. They did great. They prevailed. Because in the battle, they're on the east side of the Jordan River, they called out to God and He gave them victory. Until the exile. We're told the sons of the half-tribe of Manasseh lived in the land from Bashan to Baal Hermon to Sinir to Mount Hermon that's up there in the north of Israel. And they were numerous. Verse 25 tells us, however, they acted treacherously against the God of their fathers and played the harlot after the gods of the peoples of the land whom God had destroyed before them. So, the God of Israel stirred up the spirit of, of Pol, king of Assyria, even the spirit of Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria and he carried them away into exile namely the Reubenites the Gadites and the half tribe of Manasseh and brought them into Hala Habor Hara and to the river of Gazan to this day and there's a lesson here too and we need to get this when we like these three tribes Reuben, Gad and the half tribe of Manasseh when we cry out to God we like them are mighty Because again, it's His power, His Spirit working in us. When we are treacherous against God, we fall. How is it these three tribes were treacherous against God? They went from being God only to being God and. God and Ashtoreth. God and Baal. God and Molech. You realize the people of Israel never completely gave up God. They didn't reject God wholesale. We don't believe in you anymore. We believe in these guys. They believed in God and. They combined polytheistic faith. But my friends, what they learned the hard way and we need to understand is there's no such thing as God and. There is only God only. But because they went down the road of God and in 738 B.C., the Lord unleashed Assyria on them. 
Assyria came like a swarm. Now you know that at that time, northern Israel, the northern kingdom, ten tribes were all taken out. But the first three to go were Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. Well, why were they first? Because they never took their inheritance. They never crossed the Jordan. They stayed on the east side. They thought it was fine to be there, to live on the fringe. And the truth is, life on the fringe is never a good place to live. Life on the fringe will get you bit as these three tribes were taken out first by the Assyrians. Let me read this verse to you. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14. Paul says the following, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, as, as we're seeing tonight, that He would grant you according to the riches of His glory to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in the inner man so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, listen to this, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. That we would live our lives, Paul prayed this, not God and what I'm doing over here. Not God plus the other things that are taking my attention, but that our lives would reflect the fullness of God. Whatever we do, wherever we are, that God is present in all of it, in every aspect of who we are. That was not the case for Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. When it was the case, they were victorious. But when they cast God in to be one of many gods, they fell disastrously. Chapter 6. Hang with me. We're really gonna we're, we're gonna fly now, okay? The sons of Le- we've already done five chapters, which I think is pretty impressive so far. The sons of Levi were Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. The sons of Kohath were Amram, Izhar, Hebron, and Uziel. The children of Amram were Aaron, Moses, and Miriam. The sons of Aaron were Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. Eleazar became the father of Phineas, and Phineas became the father of Abishua. Abishua became the father of Buki. Love that name. And Buki became the father of Uzi. I guess a gun manufacturer. And Uzi became the father of Zerahiah. And Zerahiah became the father of Meraioth. And on down the line, we're talking now about the priestly tribe of Levi. But you need to understand, in these first 15 verses, they deal with the Levitical priesthood. But there's, there's a division in the tribe of Levi. There's the priesthood, which is through Aaron in the tribe of Levi, and his sons, and they were the ones who functioned in the temple, make, doing the sacrifices and, and taking care of the temple things. But the rest of the family was divided into three other aspects, and we studied this in Exodus, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. They were all Levites. They were all of the Levitical tribe, but they were not priests, who served in the temple, they had different roles and different functions. They were in charge of everything, from the temple utensils to the furnishings to the gatekeeping to the worship leading, which we talked about Sunday and we'll see again eventually next week in chapter 9. But all the way through the rest of chapter 6, we get a detail of the settlements of Levi. And it's interesting. In fact, you can contrast the settlements of Levi where they lived to those three tribes we just talked about, Reuben, Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh. They were on the fringe, east of the Jordan, never coming into the promised land that God wanted them to be in. They stayed on the other side, fringe people. But in chapter 6, we can read about, and I'll encourage you to do this on your own, 16 through 48 in the chapter, talks about where, where they lived. 
where they were placed. It's interesting because geographically, geographically the tribes of Levi were, Levi were dispersed throughout Israel. In and among all the people. During their journey, the 40 years in the wilderness, they encamped right next to the tabernacle, but in the promised land, they didn't have their own section of land like all the other tribes did. Levi was dispersed. Why is that? Because in Numbers 18, verse 20, the Lord said to Aaron, You shall have no inheritance in the land, nor any portion among them. That's not fair. How come, Lord? They got something better. God said, I am your portion and your inheritance among the sons of Israel. What does that mean? They were dispersed throughout Israel because the tribe of Levi would be those who would bring the Scriptures to the people. They would be the priests. And they lived in and among and throughout all the people of Israel. And their portion, their inheritance, was the Lord Himself. Chapter 7, verse 1. The sons of Issachar were four, Tola, Pua, Jashub, and Shimron. And down through verse 5, you talk about the sons of Issachar. They're named and listed there. Verse 6 through 12, we talk about the offspring, the genealogy there of Benjamin. Verse 13, you see Naphtali. Verses 14 through 19, we see Manasseh. And again, these are just listings of names in each one of these tribes. I'm not going to go through and read all of them tonight. I will point out verse 15 mentions some significant women the daughters of a man named Zelophehad. And they're mentioned here and they're mentioned again in Numbers 27, an interesting story, because they're the first women among the Israelites to receive a birthright. Women didn't receive the birthright. Women received protection and care and covering from the firstborn sons who did receive birthright and, and the inheritance from their fathers. And so the women were cared for that way. But in the case of Zelophehad's daughters, their father died. Their brothers had all died. There was no one to give them covering and care and protection. And they brought their case before the Lord. And the Lord said, take care of these girls. Give them an inheritance. I point that out, ladies, just to say God is tender in His heart toward His daughters. He always makes sure His daughters are cared for. He loves them. He protects them. He wants them to be provided for. And Zalafahab's daughters are a great example of that. Numbers 27. You can study their, their story on your own time. Now verses 20 through 27 in chapter 7 detail the sons of Ephraim. One son, you might note, let's see, on, uh, on down about verse 20, yeah, 27, Nun, his son, and Joshua, his son. And so that's Joshua, Yehoshua in the Hebrew. The son of Nun, doesn't mean he didn't have parents, and it doesn't mean he was Catholic. Son of none. Which shouldn't work anyway. Joshua, this is the Joshua who led the people into the promised land. And so his name is mentioned right there. Joshua was of the tribe then of, of Ephraim. One other thing I'll note to verses 28 and 29 list Ephraim's settlements, and included in there a couple of places, Megiddo and Bet Shan. If you've been to Israel, you've seen Megiddo and Bethshan. If you're going to Israel next March, I encourage you to do it. We will see Megiddo and Bethshan, and there are fascinating stops on that tour. Finally, we have the tribe of Asher, verses 30 on down through verse 40. And in verse 40, I'll just read this verse to you. It says, All these men were the sons of Asher, heads of the fathers' houses, choice and mighty men of valor, heads of the princes, And the number of them enrolled by genealogy for service in war was 26,000 men. Great and mighty men. 
interesting, from these choice men, these mighty men, the most important person of the tribe of Asher, who is mentioned and listed in the New Testament, is not a mighty man at all. When Jesus was presented as a young'un at the temple, Luke writes the following, Luke 2.36 says there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Samuel of the tribe of Asher. Anna was advanced in years and had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, and then as a widow to the age of 84. She never left the temple, serving night and day with fasting and prayers. And at that very moment, Luke writes, that moment when she saw Jesus, Simeon is, is praising and saying, Jesus, you know, the Messiah is here. And when Anna saw Jesus, as an infant, she came up and began giving thanks to God. Luke writes, and she continued to speak of Him to all those who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. For all these mighty men of Asher, the one who has a legacy is Anna. Why is that? I think it's obvious it goes to show us that more notable than might and valor is someone who is looking for, recognizing, and telling other people about Jesus. Which is what Anna did. And it makes her highly significant. Now, we're going to finish up. Hang with me a couple more minutes. Chapter 8 begins to lead us in the direction of the story Ezra was inspired to chronicle. That is the royal line. But we're not quite there yet. For though we come to Israel's first king, the tribe is all wrong. Verse 1, chapter 8. Benjamin became the father of Bela, his firstborn. Ashbel the second. Ahariah the third. Noah the fourth. And Rapha the fifth. And by the way, I challenge you to say all the names, chapters 1 through 8, say them all three times fast and see if you can get through them. <laughs> it says, Bella had sons, Adar, Gera, Abihud, and on down, listing name after name after name. We come finally down to verse 33 with a man named Nerd, or Nur, sorry, who became <laughs> the father of Kish, and Kish became the father of Saul, and Saul became the father of Jonathan, Malkishua, Abinadab, and Eshbaal, or Ishbosheth is who Eshbaal is. So now we get to Saul. For all that, we're now down to Saul, who is now the first king, will become the first king of Israel. Great and mighty Saul. In fact, 1 Samuel 9, verse 1 says, There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of a Benjamite, a man of, mighty man of valor. He had a son whose name was Saul, a choice and handsome man. And there was not a more handsome person than he among the sons of Israel from his shoulders and up. He was taller than any of the people. He was the Brad Pitt of the day and yet taller. You know, This was a good-looking, strapping young man. The kind of man you look at and go, now there's a king. Saul was a choice man for Israel's first king, but he wasn't God's choice. He was the people's choice. He was exactly what the people were looking for when they said, give us a king like the nations. And God said, okay, you want a king like the nations? I'll give you Saul. So the first king out was not a very good situation for Israel. But it's also a problem for us. Listen again to the old prophecy of Jacob. Genesis 49.10 The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Jacob prophetically pronounces the ruling tribe is going to be Judah, and yet the first king comes from Benjamin. Well, that's a problem. Unless you realize that someone from the tribe of Judah could not have reigned as king when Saul reigned. 
At that point in history, you could not have a man of the line of Judah sitting on the throne as king. Not yet. You Bible students may recall this. There was a ten-generation curse that was placed on the line of Judah, beginning with Judah himself. Deuteronomy 23, verse 2 said, No one of illegitimate birth shall enter the assembly of the Lord. None of his descendants to the tenth generation shall enter the assembly of the Lord. So serious was the Lord about inappropriate births or or births that were outside of the marriage relationship, illegitimate births, the Lord said, they cannot enter my assembly for ten generations. Back at 1 Chronicles 2, verse 4, we're told that Tamar, Judah's daughter-in-law, bore him Perez. And it was through Perez that the rest of the line of Judah would come to King David. There was a curse on the line of Perez because of this illegitimate birth of Judah by Tamar. But track this. Judah begets Perez by Tamar. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nakshan. Nakshan fathered Salma. Salma fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed by Ruth, that wonderful love story. Obed fathered Jesse. And in the tenth generation, Jesse fathered David. And David could now rightfully be king. The point I'm making here, gang, is the people couldn't wait. They so wanted a king like the nations. Had they been able to wait one generation, they would have had God's choice for the throne, who was David. They wouldn't wait. They wanted it their way. They wanted it then and now. And so God said, okay, I'll give you Saul, a Benjaminite, because Judah's not yet ready. When Judah's ready, David will be king. God's choice was David. God's timing was perfect. And it always is. A thousand years later, along the line of Judah and David, another son was born. A thousand years after David, you know who I'm talking about, a son was born. But then, instead of the line being cursed, the son became a curse. So that you and I could be saved from our sins. Romans 5, 6 says, While we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. God's timing is perfect. As it was for setting David on the throne, so it was when Christ came. Paul writes in Romans 5, 7, One will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. Well, chapter 8 finishes up talking about the sons of Benjamin leading us to Saul. And next week when we get to chapter 9, we'll see a little bit more of the people of Jerusalem and chapter 10, a short story about the failing of King Saul. Let's pray. God, we thank You for Your Word. And even tonight, though we've gone a little long for this, this bus tour through eight chapters of genealogy, the Father, I pray that we would recognize, though we moved quickly, how significant these names are. As, as we talked about on Sunday, while we skipped over many names, you don't miss a single one. And you have been aware of every soul that's ever lived. You know all of these names, all of these people, personally and by heart. Many who have been saved by faith in You, many who are lost 
and though their existence was not lost to you. Father, we pray that we will be a people who are, Lord, completely aware of the names all around us. There are so many, so many names who need to come to the one name that can save, Jesus Christ. And I pray again, Father, You will open our eyes to the harvest. And You will prepare this church fellowship to receive and to call out Jesus. To be a place where people will come to You in the masses by faith, not to see our greatness, Father, but that we might see You do great eternal things. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for Your precision and Your perfection in all of Your choices. Truly, your judgments are righteous. And we praise you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.